Do you feel a shiver up your spine from fear? Yes, it's another story from the Nightshade Diary. You know what that means. Check under the bed and make sure no one or nothing is there. Is the closet door securely shut? Then leave your disbelief behind. Amp up your imagination and hang on tight for another ride into terror and mystery. And like all good horror stories, just imagine it's a dark and stormy night. And remember, screaming like a little girl is permitted. The Post Hole Digger's Ghost The skeletons of Rambouillet Bill and Cotswood Canvasback were found a long time after this all happened by one of the Warren Livestock Company's fence riders. This fence commences in northeastern Colorado near the 27th degree of longitude west from Washington and extends west over hills and valleys, plains and mountains, through all kinds of latitudes, longitudes, and vicissitudes. There is a legend in regard to the building of this fence that is told in whispers. When the fire burns low of a night in western homes, it runs something like this. Years ago, Senator Warren, Manager Gleason, and some other Massachusetts Yankees started in the sheep business in southern Wyoming and northern Colorado, and as the country was large, they thought it would be a good thing to fence in a few hundred thousand acres of government land and save the grass so fenced in case of hard winters and other things, and graze their sheep in this enclosure only when there was no more grass around the little homesteads taken here and there by settlers. So hiring a young German from the old country, who couldn't speak a word of English, to dig the post holes, they got him a brand new shovel, a post bar about eight feet long, the famous receipt for cooking jackrabbits, and started him digging near the 27th degree of longitude west from Washington. Pointing towards the setting sun in the west, they went off and left him. The German was never seen alive again, but he left a never-ending line of post holes behind him. The Warren Livestock Company, it is said, put on a great many men, setting the post in these holes and stringing barbed wire on them. And although they kept ever-increasing the force that built the fence, yet they never caught up with the German. And time after time, the post-setters would come to the top of a high hill or range of mountains and thought they would come inside of the German, only to see a long line of post holes stretching away over hill and valley towards the setting sun. After a while, the Mormons along the line of Utah and Wyoming complained of seeing a ghost about the time they drove their cows home of an evening. They said it was a German with grizzled locks and flowing beard with a large meerschaum pipe in his mouth and a shovel in one hand from which the blade was worn down to the handle and a post bar no bigger than a drag tooth in the other hand. He was always looking towards the setting sun, shading his eyes with his hand and muttering these words, Das sinkend, son ich fange sie nicht. But when they approached close to him or spoke to him, he immediately vanished. When the ghost wasn't disturbed, it seemed to be digging holes. It would go through the motions of digging a hole in the ground, then rising up, take thirteen steps in a westerly direction, look back to see if the line was straight, dig another hole, and go on. Sometimes the ghost seemed to be studying a well-worn piece of paper, which was undoubtedly the receipt for cooking jackrabbits, and would mutter in German, Oh, ween, oh, ween, 
Easter Gengen, Mischwanz, so cruz und or so lang. O win, is mien has gigangen. After a while, the ghosts began to appear in western Utah, and still later on in Nevada, always digging a never ending imaginary line of post holes. No one ever knew where the actual post holes left off and the imaginary ones commenced, as the Route County cattlemen in western Colorado never allowed any sheepmen to encroach on their range, and they always killed all the sheep and sheepmen who dared to intrude, of course the worn livestock had to stop building fence west and turn north before they got there. When the ghastly skeletons of Rambouillet Bill and Cotswold Canvasback were found lying by this fence, their bones picked clean by coyotes and vultures, a small book was picked up near them which proved to be a diary of their adventures and last hours of suffering. It will be remembered that Rambouillet Bill and Cotswold Canvasback couldn't write, but they had drawn pictures in the book, and when we had gotten another sheepman who couldn't write to examine them, he read them just like print. The first picture was a mountain with a lot of marks, which was interpreted as the flood, and two men drawn crosswise laying down was the sheepman being washed away. The next picture was a wire fence with two men clinging to it. He said that was when they washed into the fence. The next was another fence picture showing two men walking along it. There was about 50 pictures after this one, but they always had a section of a wire fence in them. Several pictures in the front part of the book showed the two men eating jackrabbits, but later on some of the pictures showed them chasing a prairie dog or trying to slip up on one, indicating that they couldn't find any more jackrabbits. There were pictures of them chewing bits of their clothes to get the sheep grease out of them. Then there was pictures of them pointing to their mouths and stomach. Finally, in the last picture, they were in the act of eating a piece of paper with some writing on it, which was probably the receipt for cooking jackrabbits. They probably had walked hundreds of miles along this fence before they finally succumbed, and as it was a country where they had herded large bands of sheep, the grass had become so exterminated that no jackrabbits could live there, and consequently Rambouillet Bill and Cotswood Canvasback had gradually starved to death. Next chapter, Grafting. One night, while we were in Cheyenne, we were going from the dispatcher's office down to our way car, which was, as usual, about one mile from the depot. The railroad company had quite a number of police on duty in the yards to watch for strikers, there having been a machinist strike on for a long time. No strikers had ever come around the railroad yard nights or even interfered with any one of them at any time, but a lot of fellows who wanted soft jobs as watchmen made the officials of the road think the strikers were going to do something, and these night watchmen had, it seems, been looking for a long time for some weak tramp to beat to death and then claim the tramp was working in the interest of the strikers and was about to injure railroad property when those awful sleuths caught him in the act and put his light out. Thus they could get a fresh hold on their jobs. However, they had been unable to catch a tramp, and as they had to get somebody in order to hold their jobs, they cornered Dilberry Ike, who had loitered behind the rest, and one of the valiant watchmen, swiping him over the head with a six-shooter, scalped him as clean as a Sioux Indian would have done with a scalping knife. Hearing Dilberry Ike's cries for help, we went to his rescue, and none too soon, as the watchman was still beating him. 
When we had got a doctor for Dilberry, of course, the first thing he asked for was Dilberry's scalp, so he could sew it on again. But although we made a long search for the scalp, we found only a few bloody hairs, and undoubtedly some hungry canine prowling around had ate it up. However, the railroad company, after some parleying, agreed to pay for having a new one grafted on, and as grafting is the long suit of the Cheyenne doctors, there was a general scramble for the job. "'Twas finally agreed to divide the job amongst them, "'or rather divide the space and the money. "'The doctors immediately advertised "'for contributions of pieces of scalp "'to graft on Dilberry's head. "'But no one responding, "'they offered to buy some sections of scalp, "'and this ad was responded to in a mysterious way "'by a midnight visitor at each of their offices, "'with a small piece of very close-shaven fresh scalp, "'which the visitor was a woman in each case and so muffled up that her features couldn't be seen claimed she had cut off billy's or johnny's or jimmy's head after putting them under the influence of ether each of the four doctors paid her twenty-five dollars and hiked off to plaster the piece of hide on dilberry ike's cranium the scalped place had been carefully laid off by a civil engineer so each of the four doctors knew his corner in the block and without any courtesies to one another they each trimmed down his $25 piece of hide to fit his corner and then fastened it in. Grafting took at once, and in a few days was healed over nicely, despite the fact it turned out the woman had taken a different piece of scalp off from different pet animals, which she kept. One was a pet pig, another a pet goat, another a pet sheep, and the fourth a pet dog of the Newfoundland breed. When the hare wool and bristles all began to make a luxuriant growth on Dilberry's new scalp, he seemed to be more or less affected by the dispositions of each animal from which a part of the wonderful scalp was removed, and when the different colored hair, wool and bristles had grown to a good length, the effect of this unique head covering was very striking to strangers. However, Dilberry Ike was justly proud of it, as the doctors had charged the Union Pacific $1,200 for this variegated scalp. Of course, no other cowpuncher could boast of such a valuable head covering. There was one little bare spot in the center, which was above timberline, as it were, where the doctors making these four corners each had been a little shy of material, and here was a little open or park on the top of his head in which sheep ticks, hog lice, dog fleas, and goat vermin would have a common ground to assemble and sun themselves. The Cattle Queen's Ghost when darkness overshadows a lone cow ranch, wild and drear, one's nerves they get a trembling in a way that seems so queer. When you feel the spirits round you tis idle than to boast, you don't believe those stories you've heard about the ghosts. One dark rainy evening, while we were waiting on a sidetrack, the boys insisted I should tell them some adventure of mine. So after considerable urging, I told them an actual experience I had that has always convinced me that murdered people's ghosts come back and haunt the place they were murdered in. Twenty years ago, Jerry Wilson was known as the cattle king of the Platte River. His cattle roamed for hundreds of miles up and down the main river and all its tributaries, and as the cowboys used to say, no one man could count them even if they were strung out, because he couldn't count high enough. Jerry had a beautiful wife and two lovely children, a boy and a girl, and for years he and his family had no settled place to live, but went round amongst his different ranches, staying a while at each one, 
the children being kept in school in Chicago, except in the summertime when they came west to stay on some cattle ranch with their parents. Finally, Jerry Wilson bought a new ranch up in the south part of South Dakota on Battle Creek and stocking it up with registered cattle and fine horses, built a fine house, furnished it very expensively, and settled on this ranch for their home. He built magnificent barns that were the talk of the whole country and spent a small fortune in building up and beautifying his ranch. But one day Jerry was riding his horse after a cow on a hard run. The horse stepped in a badger hole and fell on top of him, crushing in his ribs and otherwise injuring him so he only lived enough to be carried to the house and bid his wife and children goodbye before he died. Mrs. Wilson mourned for Jerry a long time, but the care of her two children and the increasing cattle herds occupied her mind and time to such an extent that her grief had settled into a quiet sadness when a young man from New York City who had been discarded from home by his family for his profligate excesses came to Battle Creek and stopping at Mrs. Wilson's ranch was as is the custom at all cattle ranches in the West, made welcome to stay as long as he wanted to. At this time, Jerry Wilson had been dead seven years. His daughter, who was the oldest of the two children, had married a prominent lawyer of Chicago. The son was in school in the same city, and Mrs. Wilson made her home at the Battle Creek Ranch. She had successfully carried on all her cattle enterprises and was known all over the West as the Cattle Queen. She was about 40 years old at this time, still a beautiful woman, and had received many offers of marriage, but had rejected them all, till this graceless and unprincipled scoundrel from New York, whose name was Clayton Allen, came to the ranch. Mrs. Wilson had arrived at the age where a great many women begin to hanker for a young romance, society, and attention, and was soon violently in love with Clayton Allen, and he, seeing a chance to get hold of large sums of money, to gamble and go on sprees with, and knowing he could never hope to get any more from his family, laid siege to the cattle queen's heart and herds with all the wiles he was capable of. To make the story short, Mrs. Wilson married this worse than scamp and learned too late to regret her mistake. He persuaded her first to sell all her great cattle herds and ranches and invest all the money in bonds, which she did, keeping only the ranch and blooded cattle on Battle Creek. He now persuaded her to go to New York City with him, and soon as they arrived he joined his old gang of profligates and spent his nights with gay men and women only coming to see her when his money was exhausted and then only long enough to get more money in vain she pled with him in sorrow and grief not having seen him for several days she took the train for the west and returned alone to her old battle creek home she had been home for about a month staying in her room alone most of the time weeping and crying when one stormy black night clayton allen returned about ten o'clock he immediately went to his wife's room. The servants heard loud talking and angry words between them for some time, and apparently he was demanding money, and she was refusing to give him any. There was a large hall that ran through the center of the house, dividing the building its entire length. The servants had their rooms, and the dining room was on the west side of the hall, and the cattle queen had her parlors and sleeping apartments on the other side. By eleven o'clock, the servants heard their mistress walking up and down the hall, crying and moaning, but on opening their door that led into the hall, found she had gone back into her rooms. But Clayton Allen came in the hall just then and asked the housekeeper to bring a bottle of wine, as her mistress was ill and wanted some. The wine was brought, and Clayton Allen, taking it out of her hand at the door, 
closed the door in her face, telling her if she was wanted, he would call her. Thirty minutes later, the housekeeper heard her mistress scream for help in the hall, and rushing in found her lying on the floor in violent spasms, and picking her up, carried her to the bed, only to see her die the next moment. The death-stricken woman only spoke once as she was being carried to the bed. She whispered in the housekeeper's ear, Mr. Allen has poisoned me. All the cattle queen's money and bonds were kept in a portable safe, and where she kept the keys hidden, no one knew. But at the funeral of the lawyer from Chicago, who, it will be remembered, married Jerry Wilson's daughter, appeared on the scene, and after consultation with the housekeeper and cowboys at the ranch, Clayton Allen disappeared. In fact, the cowboys kidnapped him and kept him guarded in an old dugout for several days, and when they let him go, the lawyer had returned to Chicago. The safe disappeared at the same time the lawyer left. So Clayton Allen never got the enormous fortune that was in the safe, but he got an administrator appointed, and the administrator sold the herd of fine cattle at the Battle Creek Ranch to me, as also the use of the ranch for one year and the hay. I tried to get some cowboys living in that part of the country to take care of the ranch and cattle, but all of them promptly refused, saying they wouldn't stay there for any amount of money. Then I sent some of my men from Wyoming Ranch, where I was living at the time, but in a week they came back, looking shamefaced and sulky, but refusing to stay at the Battle Creek Ranch. After I questioned them pretty sharply, they said they didn't believe much in ghosts, but the Cattle Queen's ghost was too much for them. They said from 10.30 o'clock in the evening till after midnight she tramped up and down the hall in the house, crying, screaming, and groaning. They said the doors leading to the halls to the Cattle Queen's room kept opening and shutting, and they could hear her talking and expostulating with someone and walking back and forth from the hall to her rooms. I had an old man working for me at the time, who was almost totally deaf, so I sent him and my own son, Georgie, who was a manly, brave little fellow of twelve years, to the ranch. I had a talk with George before they started and told him all about it. I told him someone was trying to buy the ranch cheap and was making these disturbances in order to give the ranch the name of being haunted. But in a week, I got a letter from my boy saying there might not be any such things as ghosts, but there was certainly some kind of carrying on in the hall of that old house every night and wanting me to come up. So taking my gun and dog, I went up there to lay the ghost. My dog was one of the largest specimens of the big Blue Dane breed and wasn't afraid of anything. And I said to myself, now I will nail these parties and convince my son while he is young that there isn't any such thing as ghosts. When I arrived at the ranch, I found Deaf Bill, as we called him, and my little boy had taken up their quarters in the housekeeper's room, which was in the extreme western portion of the house, which was built without any upstairs, all the rooms being on the ground floor. I went into the hall of the house and found that the doors at each end of the hall were locked from the inside, the keys being in the locks. I next went to the parlors and sleeping apartment used by the cattle queen in her lifetime and where she met her tragic death and found the curtains all down and the windows closed with catch locks and screens outside of the windows. Everything was apparently in the same condition as when the rooms were fastened up after her death. Her books and pictures and paintings and wardrobe and easy chairs were all there, just as she might have stepped out expecting to be back at any moment. I raised the window in her bedroom with some difficulty, as I wanted to air the room a little, for I had made up my mind to sleep in that bed that night in those haunted rooms and convince superstitious people that I at least wasn't afraid of ghosts. 
I tried to get my little boy to sleep in there with me, but with pale cheeks and staring eyes and chattering teeth, he begged so hard that I didn't insist on it. I have always been thankful that I didn't oblige him to stay with me that dreadful night. When I retired about 8.30 that evening, with my dog and gun, into the haunted rooms, I was very tired from my long drive from the railroad, and setting the lamp on a stand at the head of the bed, and putting my six-shooter under my pillow, I called my dog to the side of the bed, and laying down with my clothes on, pulled some blankets over me, blew out the light, and immediately went to sleep. How long I slept, I know not, but was awakened by my dog, who was whining and licking my face. When I first woke up, I didn't remember for a moment where I was, but the next moment heard a long-drawn sigh across the room from me, and could hear somebody walking on the carpet. I bounded up, and had just lit the lamp when I heard someone open the door from the parlor into the hall, and the next moment heard an agonizing cry for help in the hall. I now grabbed the lamp and my six-shooter, and running through the two parlors, opened the hall door suddenly, just after hearing the second cry for help, and found that the hall was absolutely empty, the doors at each end still being locked, and the doors that led into the servants' part of the house was also locked from my side of the hall, as I had locked it when I went through to go to bed. I went back into the two parlors and sleeping apartments and searched them thoroughly, even the wardrobes and clothes closets, tried all the windows, but there was no trace of any living person's presence. I then noticed my dog. He had crawled under the bed and was lying there whining in the most abject terror. I dragged him out and kicked him a couple of times and told him to watch them, but apparently he'd had all the ghost business he cared about, for he lay at my feet trembling and whining. Disgusted with him, I laid down again thinking I would blow out the light, but be ready with my six-shooter and some matches and catch whoever it was prowling around that house, trying to hoodoo the place. I had any more than laid down and blown out the light before my dog was trying to get out of the window back of my bed and whining piteously, and then I heard a woman crying in the same room with me and coming slowly towards my bed. I began to get nervous but scratched the match and in the flickering light saw the room was absolutely empty. But as the match went out, I heard someone run through the parlor, open and shut the door into the hall, and then heard a long despairing cry for help in a woman's voice. I plucked up the little courage I had left, ran to the hall door and opened it, lighted a match, gazed up and down that empty hall, seeing nothing or nobody. But as the match flickered and went out, there came a breath of cold air right in my face. And then out of that black darkness, seemingly right at my shoulder, arose that awful blood-curdling cry for help again. And as my blood froze in my veins, my dog answered the cry with one of those long, despairing, drawn-out mournful howls that dogs always give as a premonition of death in the family. I tottered back to the bed and vainly tried to light a match, but was too nervous. Then hearing that light footstep and that rustling presence coming from the hall through the parlors again towards the bed, I dropped the match and pulling a lot of blankets and bed covers over my head, I huddled down in a heap and lay there trembling with fright and horror till the next morning when I heard my boy pounding on the outside of the window and calling me to breakfast. No money would have induced me to have stayed another night on that ranch, and getting an offer next day for the cattle, I sold them. Five years afterwards, I saw a man who had come by the Cattle Queen's ranch, and he said nobody lived there. The house and barns were all out of repair, 
the fields overgrown with weeds and an air of desolation to the whole premises. The administrator had finally sold the property for a song to an Easterner and he moved his family up there in the daytime. He had to go back to town that night for another load of his goods and when he returned to the ranch the next day, he found his wife roaming around the fields as a raving maniac and she is still in the asylum in South Dakota. They say the cattle queen's ghost still keeps entire possession and will till her murderer is punished for his crimes. Sarah. The rainy season had now set in good earnest all through Nebraska, and while the natives have typhoid fever and malaria to a more or less extent, yet most of them live through it. But people from the dry mountain regions that have been used to pure air and water all their lives fare worse from these fevers ten times over than the natives, and Dilberry Ike fell a victim right in the start. One evening, soon after we left Grand Island, I noticed his face was flushed, very red, and he complained of a dull headache. But, as he had had the headache a good deal since the railroad police had scalped him at Cheyenne, in mistake for a striker, I didn't think so much of his headache. But when I came to look at his tongue and feel his pulse, I found every indication of high fever. In a few hours, he was out of his mind and talked of shady mountain sides, babbling brooks and clear mountain springs of water, and he talked of his hosses and cattle, his cow ranch and alfalfa meadows, but most of all he talked of Sarah. Now Dilberry had only one romance in his life that we knew of, and that happened in this way. Several decades previous to our story, the few families living in the vicinity of Dilberry's ranch in Utah had got together and built an adobe schoolhouse, and voting a special tax on the piece of railroad track that run through their part of the country had raised enough money to pay for the schoolhouse and hire a school teacher. At first, each of the three married women in this neighborhood wanted to teach the school. Then each of them offered to take turns about teaching it so that they could divide the money. But their husbands, who were the directors, wanted a school marm so as to have a little young female blood diffused through the atmosphere in that part of the country. And after advertising for a school teacher, the New England brand preferred got hundreds of answers very shortly. So, putting their heads together, they selected one that had a kind of crab-apple perfume attached to the application and was worded in such a way as to give the reader a notion of pleading blue eyes with a wealth of golden-brown hair and heaving bosom, not too young to teach school nor too old to be romantic and sympathetic, and closed a deal with her to come west and teach their school. She had signed her name Sarah Jessica Virginia Smythe, but was always known as Miss Sarah. When she was about to arrive at the railroad station, thirty miles away, all the married men wanted to go and meet her. All of them had particular business in the station that day, but none of their wives would stand for it. They said that Dilberry Ike was a bachelor and the proper one to get her. Now, Dilberry Ike was a long, gangling, bashful, backward plainsman, never had a sweetheart and was considered perfectly harmless around women by everyone who knew him. The old married men finally agreed to let Dilberry meet the schoolmarm, but not till each had went through a stormy scene with his wife in which that good woman had threatened to tear the blanket right in two in the middle with such forcible language that you could almost hear it ripping. Dilberry had got shaved, had his hair cut, put on his best black suit he had bought from a sheeny, the pants being a trifle of six or eight inches too short for him at the top and bottom both, his coat rather large in the waist but short at the wrist like the pants, and hitching his mules to his spring wagon, 
he started bright and early to the station of Calton, Utah. He arrived about noon, him and his mules white with alkali dust, and finding that the train was twenty-three hours late, stayed at the section house till next day, there being no hotel in Kelton. When the train came along next day about noon, a large portly lady of uncertain age, with her frizzed-up hair turning gray, her hands full of wraps, lunch baskets, sofa pillows, telescope grips, umbrellas, bandboxes, and bird cages, climbed off the train, and the baggage man put off a large horsehide trunk from which most of the hair had been worn off, or perhaps scalped off in the troublous times when Washington was crossing the Delaware. When she got this old, bald-headed-looking trunk and a couple of shoeboxes with rope handles that were probably full of century magazines, piled up with her other baggage, the newsboy said it looked like an Irish eviction. When Dilberry saw this old man-hunter and all her luggage, his heart failed him, and he went to the saloon three times to lick her up before he got up sand enough to talk to her. Of course, Dilberry expected to marry her, no matter what she was like, as the whole neighborhood where he lived had planned it ever since the schoolmarm was talked of, and he couldn't expect to disappoint the neighbors and still continue to live there. Still, she wasn't exactly what he had figured in his mind after reading a great many novels about the rosy-cheeked, small-waisted, dainty feet, lily-white hands, wondrous brown hair, blue-eyed New England darlings, with pretty sailor hats and tailor-made suits, who came west to teach our schools and incidentally marry the most expert, roping, best bronco-busting chief cowpuncher. And now here was this dropsical-looking old girl with fat, pudgy-looking hands, and feet like a couple of poisoned pups with all this colonial baggage. However, Dilberry was obliged to take charge of her and her traps, as he called them, and when he was finally ready to start, had to get everything on the spring wagon, even to the bird cages, and after getting a final drink with the boys and filling a bottle to take along, he loaded the old girl in, whipping up his mules, disappeared in a cloud of alkali dust. Dilberry sat on his end of the seat, frightened out of his wits, and Sarah Jessica Virginia Smythe sat on the other end, but of course sat on all the vacant seat left by Dilberry, because she couldn't help it. She was built that way, and was even more afraid of Dilberry than he was of her. Although she had always been hunting a man, yet she was in a wild country and a stranger, not a house in sight and night coming on, was with a savage-looking man who was undoubtedly very drunk, and acting very strangely, to say the least. As time went on, Dilberry got drier and drier, and studied a good deal how to get a drink out of his bottle, without letting Sarah see him. Finally, he concluded he could make some excuse that the load was slipping. He might get around back of the wagon to fix it, and under cover of the darkness, quietly get a drink out of his bottle. So when they were crossing a canyon in an unusually lonely spot, he stopped the mules, and muttering something about the load, he started to get out, but Sarah thought her hour had come, and throwing her arms, which were like pillow bolsters, around Dilberry's neck, began to scream and piteously beg him not to do her any wrong. The more Dilberry Ike tried to explain, the more Sarah Jessica cried, screamed, and sobbed, till finally, with a despairing sigh, like unto the collapse of a big balloon, she fainted clear away on his breast, pitting him over the back of the seat, his spinal column slowly but surely being sawed into over the sharp edge. The horror of poor old Dilberry, when he realized that death from a broken back was only a question of her not coming out of the dead faint, 
which he seemed to have gotten an allopathic dose of, cannot be described. When some time had elapsed and she showed signs of animation, he made a great struggle to get from under her, but it was a vain attempt. He was nailed down as completely as a piece of canvas under a paving block. And when it came over him that he was doomed to this ignominious death, when he finally realized what people would think about him when they found him in this compromising position, and the cowboys would facetiously all agree that he looked like a Texas doggy steer hanging dead on a wire fence after a Wyoming blizzard, when he felt that peculiar loud buzzing in his ears that is a premonition of death, he made one final desperate struggle and spitting out a lot of gray hair, hairpins, and pieces of which, which had accumulated in his mouth, he screamed with all his strength of his lungs in one long despairing cry, the one word, Sarah! Now, in Dilberry Ike's delirium and raging fever on the stock train, he kept continually giving tongue in a long, blood-curdling, soul-freezing, despairing cry to that one word, Sarah. Night and day we had to listen to that heartbroken cry. Finally, when the fever was at the highest stage, I consulted the doctor of our special about getting a doctor, and he advised me to go back to the last town we had passed through, where there was a good physician, and get him. He said we would have plenty of time as there was a lonely sidetrack just ahead of the train. So walking back about ten miles to this town, I secured the services of a doctor, and getting a livery rig, we soon caught up with the special. When the doctor had examined Dilberry's tongue and pulse and put his ear to Dilberry's heart while he was giving one of his despairing cries for Sarah, he wrote a prescription in some kind of foreign language which he interpreted to us, as he said he had written it down as a mere form, to show that he could write in a foreign language. He said our friend was very sick, and the one thing that would save his life was to get Sarah for him. Now, of course, that was an impossibility, but he said we all needed was an imitation. Sarah something that looked like her and was about her size and form so after explaining to him what sarah was like he drove back to town and when he caught up to us again brought into the car a wonderful dummy made out of a large sack of bran with a head tied on it composed mainly of a sack of hair such as plasters used to mix mortar with he had a large but not too large mother hubbard dress on this wonderful dummy and the whole well perfumed with florida water when we laid this imitation Sarah in the emaciated arms of poor old Dilberry, his eyes grew moist for a moment, and straining it to his breast, he gave a contented sigh or two, whispered, Sarah, Sarah, and dropped off into a healthy slumber, and the doctor said he would live. Dilberry slept for a long time and awoke somewhat refreshed, but somewhat under the influence of his animal scalp, and no one being in the car, the spirit of the goat probably overtook him as he devoured the head of the dummy. Sarah, which will be remembered consisted of plastering hair. Then the spirit of the sheep and the pig coming over him, he devoured a sack of bran, and laying down in front of the stove like a Newfoundland dog, he went to sleep. Thus I found him on my return to the car. But alas, his stomach was too weak to digest all that stuff he had consumed, and in a few hours he was in a raging fever and calling for Sarah again. But of course, he had devoured Sarah. We had nothing to fix up in the place of the dummy. And while it was heart-rending to hear his sobbing cry for Sarah, growing weaker and weaker as the night wore on, yet we could only listen and hope. About four o'clock in the morning, his cry stopped and he seemed to be sleeping for a few minutes, and then opened his eyes and took my hand in a weak but rational voice, told me the story of his boyhood in the following words. He said he was born in the mountains in Virginia. 
He was the only child, so far as he knew, of a moonshiner's daughter. His mother was not an unhappy woman, he said, when she had plenty of snuff and moonshine whiskey. In fact, was quite gay at times. No one, not even his mother, knew exactly who his father was. Some people said it was a revenue officer, and some said it was the member of Congress from the district, but most people thought it was a livestock agent of one of the Western Railroads. However, this may be. He thrived on corn pone, dewberries, wild honey, and sow bosom, and as soon as he got old enough, helped his mother cut wood and haul into town in a two-wheeled hickory cart drawn by a steer. They lived with his grandfather, who was quite a prominent man in that part of Virginia, and was finally killed by revenue officers. His mother was sent to the pen for selling moonshine whiskey, and he was taken charge of by a family who immigrated to Utah. He said the last time he saw his darling mother, twas at their old home in the mountains in Virginia. The steer was hitched to the cart one beautiful spring morning. The sun's rays was just kissing the mountain tops when two revenue officers had appeared at their home, and after a lively scrap with his mother, they had succeeded in arresting her. Not, though, till she had thoroughly furrowed her cheeks with her fingernails and plentifully helped herself to sundry handfuls of their hair, after which she had peacefully seated herself in the cart and was placidly chewing a snuff-stick in each corner of her mouth. When the steer and cart disappeared around the bend in the mountain road and fate had decreed, he should never see her again. The family that took charge of him were neighbor moonshiners, and had a day or so after this took place traded off their Virginia estate for a team of antique mules and a linchpin wagon, and storing a goodly supply of moonshine whiskey, applejack, cornmeal, and bacon in the wagon, loaded the family consisting of nine children, himself included, in the wagon, and immigrated for Utah. He said as long as he was with these people, he was treated like one of the family, but as they immigrated back to Virginia the next year, they left him in Utah with a poor family, and he was hungry many times, and was always telling the children he associated with how big Dewberries grew where he came from, so the other children nicknamed him Dewberry, which was finally changed to Dillberry, and that name had stuck to him ever since. After finishing the story of his boyhood, Dillberry lay quiet for a short time, and then motioning me to bend down close to him, he whispered to me not to bury him in Nebraska, where he said the only way a man could hope to be resurrected was in the shape of a yellow ear of corn, to be fed to a yellow steer, followed by a yellow hog, and the hog meat eaten by a yellow-whiskered malarial populist, and so on. After I promised to see that he was buried on his ranch in Utah, he asked me to sing that old cowboy song, Oh, give me a home where the buffaloes roam a place where the rattlesnake plays.